Welcome to the Startup Wealth Podcast. I'm your host, Joyce Franklin. If you work at a startup or a company with a startup attitude, this podcast is for you. Each week, we talk to an expert guest about financial success and lessons learned on the journey to long-term security. My guest is Barak Rabinowitz, a co-founder of F2 Capital in Tel Aviv, Israel. F2 Capital is a seed stage VC fund backing Israeli frontier technology companies at the junction of big data, AI, and connectivity. According to Crunchbase, they have had four exits and have raised over $140 million. Barak was previously a partner at Genesis Partners, a VC firm that manages over $600 million. Prior to becoming a VC, Barak led three startups in the UK and Israel as co-founder and CEO, including Mytopia, which was acquired by 888 Holdings, a popular online gaming platform. He's also worked at Yahoo and Morgan Stanley, so he knows his way around multinational companies. He's joining us today from Israel. It's great to speak with you today, Barak. Welcome to Startup Wealth. Thank you, Joyce. It's my pleasure. So why don't we start by having you talk about your current company, F2 Capital, and your role in it? Sure. So F2 Capital is a early stage venture capital fund based in Tel Aviv, Israel. We are generally the first check into companies, which are typically two or three people with a PowerPoint presentation and a big vision. And I'm the managing partner and co-founder of the fund. And what was your experience that led you here? Prior to starting my own VC fund, I was an entrepreneur. I was co-founder and CEO of a startup company. And uh, we built up a large team of 100 people. And we had all of our challenges, daily challenges of building a product, uh, dealing with technology, selling, uh, raising money. And to offload some of that stress, I found myself making angel investments. People would come to offer their services to my startup, and I would implement their services. And if it worked well, I discussed with the founders, wouldn't it be nice to have uh, some additional investment and support? And, uh, and sometimes they said yes. And uh, we're talking about 10 years ago, you could invest $20,000 and buy 1% of a company. And I was incentivizing uh, C-level executives to join my company for 1%. So it dawned on me that I could take just 20K chips and kind of clone myself in many companies. And then when I had a bad day at work, some of these companies had a great day and it offset each other. And I loved it. I loved the whole interaction and dynamic with these founders as an investor. I'd like to go way back and talk about your childhood and the path that led you to Israel. You're originally from Ohio. Right. My father was from Israel, my, and my mother's father was from Israel. So I grew up hearing stories about the country. The country is, is new. It's from 1948, and I was born in 1978. So, you know, I was only, it was only 30 years old when I was born. It's like a parent. And it was always exciting. And at the same time, growing up Israeli-American, Jewish-American in a place like Ohio, you're, by definition, a bit of an outsider. Uh, so you're looking for your place. And so when I would come to Israel for a summer vacation... I was so happy to feel fulfilled in that sense. And also in Israel, there's a real national pride and unity 
uh, even in Tel Aviv, which is not at all religious, on the Jewish holidays, everyone comes together in a, in a very positive way. I also, I think a lot of people these days, especially, are looking for impact. Um, and I always say it's difficult to be a big fish in a, in a big pond like the U.S. But to come to Israel with a, with a unique profile, you can really rise quickly. And Israel has an oversized impact on the world these days, especially in technology. You served in the Israeli army at age 25 after graduating from Georgetown with a degree in finance and working on Wall Street for three years. How did your army experience help you in your career? I did banking because it was the thing to do when I was in college for overachievers to join an analyst program, but it didn't result from a very thoughtful self-reflection. Uh, it was more, uh, this is the thing to do, and, uh, and it was a very intense experience. And I, I had that vacuum inside, wanting some more fulfillment. And uh, when I came to Israel as a third-year analyst to help open Morgan Stanley Israel, uh, it happened to be that a, a war broke out. And I had done some research, and I toyed with the idea of joining the army and realized that 25 was the cutoff to do something meaningful, to be uh, accepted to a combat unit. Uh, so I joined. And uh, the first thing that happens is you shed your suit and, and put on a uniform. And everyone has the same uniform. So it's a leveling. I was also 25 and my commanders were 18, but I didn't speak Hebrew. So somehow that challenge leveled us. And all of a sudden you're with a group of people at the smallest level, 10 people in your squad that become like brothers. And so again, that theme of impact and community and doing things together, it all played out and challenging yourself in many ways. Personally, physically, it brought out the best in me. You worked for Morgan Stanley in New York during the 9-11 tragedy, and you had a unique role helping widows who each received about a million dollars. Tell me about that experience. After the uh, attack, Morgan Stanley uh, decided to sponsor a nonprofit together with Goldman Sachs to leverage some of the resources and, and people in our networks to help specifically the widows, because most of those who perished uh, were men who worked in finance and typically handled the finances for the families. Um, and I volunteered. It, it was my first startup experience. And um, my personal project was to develop the financial advice referral program. So we identified a problem in the market, which is the U.S. had set up a victim compensation fund to, as you said, grant a million dollars on average to each of these families. But these are families missing the person they relied on most for financial management and guidance. And, and that made them vulnerable to all kinds of characters out there, disreputable characters. So what we did is we signed up the five biggest banks on Wall Street. We had them nominate their 50 best financial advisors. We created a program together with psychologists to create financial advice in a non-threatening, non-intimidating manner. And then we invited the widows to come and we gave free advice. And then eventually, if they decided to work with a financial advisor from our network, they worked with them at deeply discounted uh, commission rates. What was the most valuable advice you gave to the widows? I think um, the most important would be uh, long-term orientation, because that's what they're looking for is trust, reliability. You know, all the time there are new products that come up, but they're not necessarily appropriate or tested or proven. So... You know, I think you got to take the bet that uh, being a thoughtful, long-term oriented financial advisor will pay off over time. When you hear that sound, it means I'm jumping in to provide some additional context that did not come up in the original interview with Barack. In some ways, Barack and I have had similar experiences. 
Both of us are founders and experienced in investment management. After a liquidity event, many engineers and executives also choose to work with a wealth manager. But others may ask, what's an advisor going to do for me that I can't do for myself? Long-term investing takes willpower, patience, and the ability to ignore Twitter. The advisor who takes a personalized approach is looking at your situation continually via your portfolio and your life to guide you when you have a change in job, marital status, family status, and the like. A good advisor will be up to date on tax laws and investing tools and research, items that constantly change. If you're working long hours, can you be sure you'll take action when you need to, to trade in order to harvest tax losses, convert to a Roth IRA when your income is low, or purchase adequate insurance to protect your net worth? The value of a wealth manager comes down to protecting and preserving wealth, mitigating taxes, and caring for your family while looking out for your best interest. After Goldman Sachs, you join the Israeli army for a year and then return to the U.S. to attend Harvard Business School. And then you moved to London. How did you end up there? I served in the army with a Belgian volunteer. And, and during that time, he introduced me to a, a Belgian girl. And we did long distance during Harvard. And she was based out of London. So I had to find a job in London. I went to work at Yahoo, which was the biggest internet company at the time, and, and spun out of there with an engineer to do our first startup. And that was a startup in the games industry in 2007. Good timing, uh, which is everything. Uh, games has grown consistently and uh, a lot more profitably than any other vertical in media. Our spark was the following. There were game shows on TV that were reaching large audiences, specifically talent shows and quiz shows, like Who Wants to Be a Millionaire or X Factor or American Idol. But these are effectively games. So could we take those formats, put them online, create social experiences, and then layer on top of that a business model where people would pay to participate and their participation would add up to a jackpot that somebody could win uh, based on their skill. And that would create very engaging content that many, many viewers would enjoy watching as well. So it was uh, one of the first or pioneering products in social gaming. What was the name of that company? That was a company called Amuso. Eventually, the assets were sold to the BBC Worldwide. Uh, and then I moved to Israel with my wife, uh, the same girl, and uh, actually stepped in as CEO of a larger company called Mytopia. Uh, Mytopia was acquired by 888 Holdings, a public company. And uh, all the, the mistakes that I made at Amuso, I was able to reflect on and uh, implement uh, learnings at Mytopia, which paid off in the form of the exit. That's a great segue to talk about the Entrepreneur's Wheel of Life. If you want to follow along, you can find the Entrepreneur's Wheel of Life at my website, www.jlfwealth.com. This chart was created from interviews I did with over 65 people for my two books, and it represents the path of an entrepreneur. Phase one is where you start the company. This laying the foundation stage could last for two to 40 years. You're working all hours of the day and night and preoccupied with your startup. Cash is a challenge. Phase two is getting closer to that liquidity event. This could last for zero to 24 months. So you're involved in negotiations, increasing the enterprise's value, learning new skills. 
Then comes the liquidity event. And then phase three that could last one to 24 months. My research shows that most entrepreneurs do not stick around with the company they founded. They move on to something else, usually going back to phase one in a new startup. So my understanding is most entrepreneurs never retire. They go back to phase one. Barack, looking at this graphic and thinking about your startup days, what phase was the most challenging for you? Laying the foundation is very challenging. Uh, when you're doing a startup, as soon as you take money, the clock starts ticking and you've made certain promises. You've provided a financial forecast and projections, both on the commercial traction and on the just product milestones. But you can only do that if you hire people to go and build and execute. But you can't predict exactly when you'll find the best people. So you end up compromising often. And that has ripple effects uh, that you may never recover from. So in my first startup, Muso, I didn't understand this at all. We had good timing, we had a good concept, uh, but we never realized the full potential of the company because we were hampered, I think, by, by the people. Um, and, and people should, a good team brings out the best in each other. So it's a reflection on me as much as it is on anybody else. In my second company, I was brought in to do a turnaround. So the people were already there and it was much, much easier. I almost skipped this first step and I immediately came in to do a turnaround and, as you say, ramp up and bring it to an exit. And I found that to be exhilarating and more a process of what to focus on and then double down on what's succeeding. And if you do that, especially in a demoralized situation, you can really tangibly feel people's eyes open and their hearts start beating. And all of a sudden you're saving the day and all working towards a, a goal together. And in my current venture, which is a venture capital fund, uh, we haven't compromised on the people. It's difficult, um, but I'm so proud of our team and the results have been great. Uh, so I, in a sense, revisited the problems that I faced in the first startup now with the lessons learned over time. Realizing the dream is almost an offshoot of doing steps one and two successfully. And as you say, you, you, you're, you're always, a good entrepreneur is always going back to phase one. So you're generating wealth over time and hopefully you're working with a good manager to handle that, but it's not something you wanna to spend too much of your time on because you have so much, it's so rewarding. Your core work is so rewarding. Um, so that's how I view it. Barack likes phase two better than phase one. He likes being closer to the liquidity event and it makes sense that he became a VC so he can help lots of other companies in the early days and ramping up to an exit. Having small or large liquidity events over time and investing the proceeds prudently is the best path to creating wealth. As you'll hear in a moment, even with his professional expertise investing in startups, Barack says the failure rate is high. Barack, what advice do you have for people in phase one who think they're going to lead their company? They think they're going to be the CEO, but maybe they're not quite right. What advice would you give to people to help them know whether they are the right person to lead or not? Having a successful venture is, is, is more important than ego. And you can be a great co-founder. You don't have to be CEO. And you can be much happier if you bring in the right CEO. CEO and a startup is a lot about people management. You know, a good CEO should spend half his time recruiting talent, screening talent, managing talent. And if you don't enjoy that, if you don't enjoy those personal interactions and 
especially giving negative feedback, constructive feedback. You know, if, if what you really enjoy doing is building the product or, or something else, then, then you ought to think about um, finding a good CEO to lead those aspects so you can focus on what you love. And also to find advisors who challenge you. Often, especially these days in the hot markets, a lot of people just want to get on board and uh, make you feel good. But it's the ones that challenge you and challenge your assumptions that can help you think critically and preserve that most precious asset, which is time. That's great advice. Let's talk about after the liquidity event, since you've experienced one and you've seen other founders go through them too. What advice would you give to a founder who just got some life-changing money? Uh, Within six to 12 months, it's critical to get a financial advisor or advisory team on board because there are so many aspects of this that you just don't want to be spending time on. Uh, You want to be spending time on your core business, which you love, or on your next venture or on your family, not on the financial management and taxes and making wire transfers and ensuring everything gets to where it needs to go and having a holistic view on all of your wealth so you can make smart decisions over time. So definitely it's key to work with a financial advisor or advisory team. And depending on where you are and what is your setup, there's different options for that. For someone who's not a professional VC, what advice do you have about angel investing? How much should people risk and what should they be cautious of? Yeah. um, First of all, people have their pie, as it were, of their, their wealth. And of course, the most of it should be directed to equities, some fixed income, some gold, some cash. Uh, and the smallest portion should be allocated to high-risk investments like startups. But then when you make those investments, they should be high-risk, high-return profile opportunities. Otherwise, there's no point. It doesn't justify the risk because most startups fail. Many of the more than 65 people I interviewed for my two books talked about angel investing, although most of them did it after their liquidity event. Some like the bragging rights of being involved in the creation of cool technology and the chance to make money at it. But most just love the excitement of building companies, creating products, and cultivating new ideas, but want to avoid the grueling 16-hour workdays that accompany launching their own startups. Barack has a unique twist on the concept of angel investing, using it as a stress relief. Yet he's honest with himself about the high risk. It's a different profile of business. An angel investment is not intended for, say, a restaurant or a retail shop. It's intended for companies that have the potential to be leaders in their category and return to you multiple times over on your investment. Then you can go one layer layer deeper and develop certain filters that you can apply when you look at a startup opportunity. If someone wants to become an angel investor, what percentage of their net worth should they invest? If you have uh, enough wealth to live comfortably, then you can start really investing. And these startups, I mean, the nature is these are long-term investments. A typical startup, a successful one, will take anywhere from seven to 10 years to exit. But if you start planting those seeds now, you can start to harvest them later and then start to harvest them rather frequently. So the wealth that's generated from these angel investments accumulate. And typically you're getting multiple times on your initial investment. So, you know, the smart approach might be to allocate some portion of your annual income or increase in wealth to startup investments and 
and place these bets as, as you apply your filter and realize the opportunities and do it consistently. Okay, let's move on to investing as a VC. What do you look for when you're choosing a company to invest in? Well, um, we have our filter in terms of what we look for when we make an investment as a VC. We look for the people. Are these founders, are there more than one? Because we, especially in early stage venture, if the founder disappears, we're in trouble. So there should be at least two, hopefully three. They shouldn't be married or siblings, ideally, because it may make it difficult to take tough decisions over time. And they should be authentic entrepreneurs. The idea should be not something they read about, but something that ideally came from something they've experienced. Maybe they sold products before, so now they're doing e-commerce play. Or they dealt with artificial intelligence, say, in the military, and now are doing an artificial intelligence platform. Uh, The story should make sense and give them credibility, and they should be complementary to each other. So if you have a commercial leader, there should also be a technical leader. And then we look at the market size, the market opportunity. Uh, As a VC, each investment we make has to have the potential to return the entire fund because of the failure rates. And so an idea with modest potential with an addressable market of a billion dollars is not relevant for us. We're looking for a $100 billion market or a trillion dollar market. And then the specific concept, you know, the value proposition, is there a deep technology here which can create a competitive moat? Is there a clear business model? And then we look for any kind of validation. Can be design partners, can be actual paying customers. Then you look at some analytics like retention rates, engagement rates, uh, and then you get into the deal terms themselves. How much are they raising? Does the plan make sense? Can we achieve our target ownership holding as a fund? And then perhaps lastly, who else is around the table? Who are the existing angel investors, advisors, co-investors? And take all of that into account to make our decision. And it's my understanding that you're only investing in Israeli companies. Yeah, we're F2 VC is an Israeli-focused venture capital fund. And our investors come from all over the world, and they're looking for exposure into the Israeli market. So if they want exposure in the U.S. or in other regions, there are other funds that are appropriate for them. Uh, but we believe in focus to succeed, and, and that's our focus. That's our mandate. The formula is we're, we're a small market here, small local market. So when I say Israeli startup, I don't mean Israeli companies focus on Israel. I just mean that these are typically founders in Israel who are developing technology that may have come out of the military and can be applied to big commercial markets. And already in the next round, one of the founders will move to the U.S. and build out the whole sales and marketing operation in the U.S., You have such a unique experience because of your early years growing up in the U.S., going to college in the U.S., and I'm curious, when you come back, what are you surprised about? First of all, I love coming back to the U.S. It's so convenient. I love going to Walmart. I find everything. uh, I find, you know, great prices, great service. We just don't have that in Israel. Israel is perhaps because of all the, the war and whatnot, people are a little bit less patient but they're very warm inside. I always am amazed by the scale and scope of ventures in the US and try to bring a little bit of that back to Israel. You know, I, you know, it used to be we're aiming for billion dollar outcomes, but then you spend time in the US today and a billion dollar outcome is lame. Go for $10 billion outcomes. And that's where companies are going public these days. So the US helps anyone think big. And there's a lot more diversity. Israel's a pretty homogenous population, but in In the U.S., you have so much diversity, genders, races, and ultimately, if you're building a world-class company, you've got to have a team that reflects the world. 
Do you look for companies in Israel who have diversity? Would prefer to back more female founders because there's just, it's missing in the ecosystem here. And um, But we do encourage when the company grows to create diverse teams in the U.S. Um, that's how we straddle that. I have a question about your time growing up. Was your name Barack when you lived in Ohio? <laughs> My, I, I was born long before Obama became president, so nobody could pronounce Barack. My nickname was Rocky, and uh, that was until probably age 20 when I went to study a year abroad in London, and everyone had funny names, so I chose to go with my real name, which is Barack, and stuck with it since. Let's talk about how you used key performance indicators, or KPIs, to achieve your goals at your startup, and how you use them now at F2 Capital. I looked at the world in terms of acquisition, retention, and monetization. So acquisition relates to bringing customers to your business. Retention means having customers who are already in the door stick around and come back and shop more. And then monetization is how much is each customer spending per month in your store or on your service. And then the question is, what do you prioritize of those three at any given point in time? For a new product, it has to be customer retention. If people are coming back, even if it's just 10 people, you're doing something right. And only after you have the retention in place up to the industry benchmarks, do you want to start investing in acquisition? Because if you do it prematurely and bring users before you have retention solved, you'll have a leaky bucket and you'll just go bankrupt. Once you have retention acquisition, then you layer in monetization. You can start low and over time you'll figure out more ways to increase the average ticket size or spend per customer. And then you have ROI, return on investment. And ultimately, if you can show investors that you have a high ROI, they'll throw money at you because you're just a cash-making machine. That's a general framework that I found very useful for startups. As a venture capital investor, our benchmarks are different. We're looking at what is our gross multiple on investment, what is our net multiple after fees, and what is our net IRR. So typically, investors can expect 7% returns in the equity markets, uh, annual returns you know, over time. And a venture capital fund is a 10-year vehicle. So we have to compensate investors for the illiquidity uh, and the risk associated with our asset class. So clearly, we can't be promising a 7% return. That wouldn't be good enough. Uh, what we're aiming for is 20 to 25% net uh, return per year. And I use that to evaluate how well we are doing. When you're working with your founders, what tools do you use to help them track KPIs? We develop together uh, you know, their business model. Um, and then basically they can choose to use off-the-shelf solutions or in-house solutions. Um, and everyone needs to identify their North Star KPI, what's the most important thing for their business, and then build their plans around that and then present it to us. Um, but ultimately, on a general sense, we're looking at the standard things like revenue and cash burn and uh, margins. Tell me more about the VC industry in Israel, including Genesis Partners, where you were an employee and a partner. Sure. Israeli VC ecosystem started in the 90s. It, uh, the government played a very active role in, in getting the VC industry off the ground through a program called Yozma which uh, effectively subsidized the first generation of funds, including Genesis Partners. There were hundreds of millions of dollars a year invested in Israeli tech. And then already by 2010, there was a billion dollars a year. And last year, there was 
10 billion, and this year we're on track for possibly 20 billion. So the industry is growing exponentially. It used to be just local players. Now there are very large U.S. growth firms like Blackstone, General Atlantic, Inside Partners that are coming in, especially at the later stages. And Genesis, as I said, was one of the original batch of funds. It had four funds under management, roughly 660 million. The last fund was raised in 2009 and has returned 10x to its investors, making it one of the best funds in the world. I joined as a partner after selling my startup as the young partner. And after a year, spun out F2, uh, my current fund, with the managing partner of Genesis and the chairman and founder of Genesis. And that was just a reflection of the, call it the changing of the guard or a new generation of funds uh, springing up in Israel. Wow, that's super impressive. Are there differences between entrepreneurs in London, Israel, and the U.S.? And if so, what are they? Israelis are, come from more technical backgrounds and they're, they're more direct. They're perhaps less good at selling, especially at the early stage. You can rely on them to be very creative and solve problems and not be daunted by big challenges um, and have very, very good technical skills. In the UK, I always found it a little bit more difficult to form deep personal relationships. I think UK is a transient population. You have a lot of immigrants from different places who eventually go back to where they're coming from. You have long distances. It was very difficult to be spontaneous. When I lived in the UK in London, it's a very big city. And if you're going to meet someone for dinner or a drink, it could be an hour on the train. So you have to plan everything. And everything just slows down a little bit. Although if you can get a startup off the ground, you're addressing all of Europe typically, uh, which is exciting and interesting and a, and a big challenge. And then the US, Americans are great at selling and marketing, but it's such a vast country and very difficult sometimes to understand what's real and what's uh, vaporware and uh, to reference somebody uh, and diligence and opportunity, unless you're one of the top funds in the market. So you've been a banker and now you're a VC. You're obviously comfortable with money. What percentage of your personal net worth are you comfortable investing in startups? Wow. I have two-thirds of my net worth in startups, either directly or through VC fund, my own VC fund or a few other VC funds that I've backed. The other third is enough to live comfortably, and that's the portion that's invested in a well-diversified portfolio of equities, fixed income, real estate. But with the rest, I'm just going to keep plowing it into startups and, and what I do because it, it's double impact. It's great potential returns, but it's also very, very rewarding to invest in people who are very ambitious to change the world. What advice would you give to your 30-year-old self just starting out in your career? Oh, wow. I would go back and tell myself, well done on following your heart in terms of the partner, my life partner, my wife, on terms of coming to Israel, on terms of uh, pursuing your dreams. But again, just focus on being with the very best people. Don't be in so much of a hurry that you compromise on the people you're working with or who you aspire to meet or get advice from. Try to take some time to be really thoughtful on your, especially you know, as it relates to your work, the decisions you're making and challenge yourself um, before you waste time because time goes you know, like that. I sense this is a theme. You're probably <laughs> so valuable to your startup founders because you can guide them from your own experience. 
Yeah, I think you got to be careful with guidance. The markets change. They're in a different reality. But uh, I do challenge them and, and try to be thoughtful and helpful. And sometimes just challenge them to think bigger and then utilize a network to, to help them uh, take their next steps. Anything that stands out to you that you want to speak about on my Entrepreneur's Wheel of Life graphic? I was surprised by the years. You know, it's encouraging uh, because I suppose people don't start the journey until they're 20. So they could even start a company when they're 50, which is nice, and then live until 100. Uh, <laughs> so I, I was interested. I was fascinated by that. And I think it's, it's fair, you know. People can't start businesses at any age. And, 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 you know, younger and younger and older and older. And then go and repeat the cycle. We're seeing it more and more often. And that's also true for the entrepreneurs you work with, I'm sure. They go around the wheel and start another company. Entrepreneurs are a bit like athletes. And the difference is we're using our minds instead of our bodies. So an athlete has that 10-year period where they can compete professionally and then the rest of their life, they still have that competitive spirit, but nowhere to really direct it. But entrepreneurs can get back in the ring. So they do. And we definitely see it. Well, I can tell you are a true entrepreneur, Barack. And I <laughs> want to thank you so much for speaking with me today and sharing your experience. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity, Joyce. You can find Barack Rabinowitz on LinkedIn. And his first name is spelled B-A-R-A-K. And his company is F2 Capital. Their website is f2vc.com. Thanks for listening to Startup Wealth. Today's show was produced by Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Original theme music by Philip Reynolds Price. To learn more about J.L. Franklin Wealth Planning and how we can help you protect your wealth, mitigate taxes, care for your family and pursue your dreams, visit jlfwealth.com. We are a growing firm. If you are an experienced advisor who subscribes to our approach and wants to grow with us, please get in touch. If you like the show and want more, please rate and review Startup Wealth in your favorite podcast app. This podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should not be construed as specific investment, legal, tax, or financial planning advice. Please consult with your professional advisor before taking any action based on the content discussed.